you've done some incredible things in your life, but it all kind of has to start somewhere. We're thinking, why hasn't someone done this before? Are we missing something? Because this seems like an obvious solution to a big problem. We should absolutely be encouraging businesses to take on the world, but why can't they take on the world from Australia? We've essentially gone viral because of a virus. We saw daily sales double one day and then 12x the day after that. Michaela, thank you so much for joining us on People Building Businesses. It's great to have you here. And, you know, when we were doing some research on you, I, I struggled to figure out how to condense your career because it's been so varied and you have so many roles and you've taken up so much responsibility. So maybe before we jump into all that, uh, I'd love to learn more about you, Michaela, the person uh, and where, you know, your history and maybe a good place to start is where you grew up. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, thank you for having me. So yes, I do have a varied career and it's probably a result of where I grew up. Uh, I'm a Cabrigal Derrick woman and I grew up in Sydney. So I grew up in, on the outskirts of a place called Warunga, kind of near Hornsby, um, on the edge of a national park. And I was, I was quite lucky to be able to spend my childhood running off into the bush and spending loads of time in nature and yeah I've been very privileged to be the daughter of Sue and Mike Butler um, and parents who are very generally supportive of us exploring nature and having a really strong connection with the natural world. And you, you mentioned that connection of nature and that sort of guided your early career is that right because you didn't start as a, a CEO or founder you started with an interest and passion in, in nature. Yeah, I did. I started my career as a park ranger and why I became a park ranger is as I was growing up and learning how to camp and hike and explore in the natural environment, I became very passionate about environmental issues and thought, wow, I just really understand the bush and I really understand the connectivity and ecosystems and I want to make a career out of this. Um, so I was fortunate enough to have a really good mentor um, in TAFE because I actually failed high school. I had to oh. go um, and matriculate through the TAFE system um, the year after year 12. So, um, yeah, I, I did year 12 twice in order mm. to get a university place to study environmental biology at the University of Technology in Sydney. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned uh, you failed high school because looking at your education, you've you know, you've got a master's degree in cybernetics with ANU, you know, you've done environmental biology with, you know, Charles Sturt University. So you have this really strong academic background and you were even an associate professor at one point, were you? Yes, I was. <laughs> I know it is, a, it is very interesting that you can do so poorly in high school, but still do well in academia and um, yeah, university and higher education. So I think it all came down to um, the school system that I was in wasn't particularly proactive about um, teaching in different ways for students. And I'm a very kinesthetic learner, so I need to be doing things with my hands in order for something to go into my brain. Mm. So making things really works. Um, being yep. immersed around the subject matter really helps. Um, so, yeah, being able to actually build build computer systems with my hands in, in the cybernetics program was really um, helpful to get the concept of machine learning and, and algorithms into my brain and actually learned about machine learning through this really cool activity we did, which was training um, 
plastic cups and pieces of paper in machine learning algorithms. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, that's how, that was my first kind of experience of how to train a, a machine learning algorithm. And yeah, it really fell into my ranks who we were actually physically doing it. Yeah. So talk to us about your career as a park ranger. What, what did that entail? And, you know, where did you go from there? Yeah, so I did go to university, but uh, I got pretty bored with that pretty quickly and <laughs> decided that I would just head to Queensland and become a park ranger. And I did loads of volunteering during my uni breaks um, with the park service up at Airlie Beach on the Great Barrier Reef. And eventually um, in my third time of going up there to do volunteer work, I was offered uh, a very low level ranger job and had to make the decision about, do I finish this degree that I've been doing or do I become a ranger? And I chose to become a ranger. Um, but my boss uh, said to me, you're not going to just be a park ranger cleaning toilets and building fences. And I really need you to finish that degree. Um, so we together pushed the university system back in 1999 to allow me to do my final exams um, in a remote community on Cape York. And I was able to finish my biology degree that way. And to the University of Technology's credit, they, they allowed me to do that through a partnership arrangement with a central Queensland university. So I was kind of one of the first to do this remote learning thing back in 1999. Wow. Yeah, but I was a park ranger um, in the Whit Sundays for eight years. So my daughter Amy was born in Proscline. And then um, my husband at the time and I moved over to Western Australia and we had the role of being the on park rangers of Cape Range National Park in Millerine, which was 55,000 hectares um, on Mingaloo Reef, um, having our house powered by solar and battery power and sort of raising, yeah, raising our first kid um, there. <laughs> and then uh, came back to the East Coast because we, ha we had um, family health issues and it was very difficult to travel over to support family. So we decided to make the move to move back to the East Coast and um, found myself in Canberra. Um, yeah, and my ex-husband and I separated in Canberra and um, in that time in Canberra, I was working for the federal government on a program called Reef Rescue. So we were looking at how could you spend $200 million um, assisting the agricultural community on the Great Barrier Reef to lower the incidence of nutrients, chemicals and sediments flowing off farms and back into the Great Barrier Reef Lagoon. Mm. Yeah, so I spent a bit of time doing that program for the federal government and then was lucky enough to find myself um, back in Kakadu National Park and working for the park service up there. And that's really where I developed in digital. So I, I had it as a side hustle. Um, before I moved to Kakadu, I was doing like a little bit of tinkering, trying to figure out how you actually do augmented reality. And then um, when I moved to Kakadu, I was able to work with um, the Bidding Mungo community to look at, okay, how do we do this in a national park where you can hold your phone up to a cultural place and Bidding Mungo can tell the story, the right story, right time, right place, the right reasons and build a business model around that. So it's kind of where Indigital was really born. Yeah, amazing. And before we jump into in digital, I just want to touch on your heritage uh, a bit more because mm. you mentioned that you were a proud, you know, you you, you are a proud Capricorn woman, and um, yeah. you only found that out when you were twenty nine years old. Is that right? Yeah. So I knew 
before. Um, so when I, back to Early Beach, when I was working as a park ranger there, I was asked by the district manager to go and do um, multi-clan negotiations around cultural law, um, which essentially was the Queensland government at the time requesting that elders commit to the multi-generational interruption of their cultural practices through the take of dugong and turtle. Because the science is saying there's not many dugongs left, so many turtles left. Um, how can we protect the species? And part of that from the Queensland government's perspective was, well, we need to you know, stop people hunting um, dugong and turtle, which I don't agree with. Um, but I was asked to go and sit around the tables of elders in their homes and, and talk to them about this agreement. And when I got there, they never really wanted to talk about the agreement. They wanted to talk about where my mob were from. And they kept asking me like, who's your mob? And I kept saying, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and, and when that happened again, when I moved to Western Australia with the community over there, I was like, okay, there's something going on here. And I tried to talk to my family about it. They didn't have much information. And when you don't have a name, it's very difficult to find your heritage. Um, and, you know, by this, by this time I, I had gone through a separation and I tried to end my life when I was 29 because there was, there was just... It was just really hard um, to reconcile everything that I was finding about myself and my family. And, you know, when you're told one thing growing up about your identity and then the rug is completely pulled out from underneath your feet about the truth of your identity, it's very difficult um, to deal with. So as a result of trying to take my life when I was 29, I had to go to a lot of um, psychological counselling, it's mandatory. And in those sessions, I kind of reconciled with myself that I wouldn't be angry about what happened to my family and that I would put all my energy and effort and resources and everything that I had into making something that could improve the outcomes for Caribbean direct people and, and all First Nations people. And that obviously let you down the path of Indigital. Um, yeah. So when did that spark come to you? Because it seems like you've been passionate about this for a very long time with your heritage and the work you've done before that as well. Yes, definitely. Um, so I first saw Augmented Reality in 2012 at the University of Canberra. I was doing some work there and um, they had, they're like, Mate, come and see this. And I put my phone over this piece of paper um, and it was a picture of a doctor and the video just hovered like one centimeter above the paper. And I thought it was magic and like, how do you do that? And went home and had a shower and this idea, crazy idea came into my mind about how we could use this to share cultural knowledge, language and law um, for the benefit of First Peoples. And yeah, so I set about building that, which is um, painful because I didn't have a technology background. Mm. <laughs> I'd seen the tech, I was like, so I know that it can exist. How the hell do you do this? Um, so I got a very, very small grant, like the technology ended up costing about $200,000 to get our first MVP up, um, wow. which as an Indigenous woman in a remote community, it's pretty much impossible to raise that much money. Mm. Um, and then uh, I got $25,000 as the first kind of R&D. So I really believe that getting a small amount of money towards a really big dream is sometimes more painful than not getting the money at all right because you just have to try and make that <laughs> tiny investment work you have and, to make it work yeah 
yeah <laughs> sorry I I I just nearly quit and I was crying on my bed one night and I was like I'm gonna have to give this dream away because like no one's gonna work with me for $25,000 I'd gone out to tender twice I'd rung everyone that I knew in Australia that's working in this um, field and they were like mm, no $25,000 is gonna get you like your first two meetings with the dev team so um yeah and then I was like okay I need to look outside Australia so I picked myself up and called um, augmented reality companies around the world and someone called Jason Higgins at Harmony AR in Biggleswade in the UK who was operating out of a barn said <laughs> I love it and I'll help you um, so he did he helped me wow. over two years over Skype learn what he calls the dark arts of augmented reality <laughs> he taught me how to do image recognition um, yeah he taught me about the user experience and how augmented reality can be used um, to really enhance someone's experience of, of something so he was great and we built our first um, minimum viable product together and um yeah, and then we got a little bit more investment and I put a lot more of my salary into creating the next version, um, working with five senior traditional owners in Kakadu to create the second iteration of the app. So, um, yeah, it was quite a journey and quite expensive and, and quite heartbreaking too in a lot of ways because as we were seeking investment to do what we wanted to do, everyone said we were basically high risk and I experienced a lot of racism and sexism in that journey and... Um, it really put me off working with the venture capital industry because um, it was just such a terrible experience as an Indigenous oh woman gosh. to go through. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I find it extremely disheartening. I mean, your product was, you know, going to help First Nations people here in Australia, but you had to go to the UK to find your first strong backer. There's yeah. a bit of irony in that, isn't it? Yeah, yes. And I've heard this from a lot of um, founders. They're like, oh, yeah, I had to take my thing overseas before it was recognized in Australia. And I feel like that happened in some ways to us. So we've worked with teams in the UK. Um, we've worked with teams in India. And we've um, also, like, also were, was invited to New Orleans um, to a venture capital uh, conference over there, which is massive and incredible. But yeah. And then, then people are like, hmm, what are you doing again? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was different about the crowd overseas who backed you versus the crowd that you encountered here in Australia that backed you, that didn't want to back you, sorry. Well, they just saw the vision straight away. Um, hmm. As soon as I explained it to Jason, because well, he'd been working in augmented reality for like 20 years, he was just like, of course, this is a great use of this technology. Hmm. Um, whereas I think people in Australia hadn't really seen augmented reality and it was very difficult to explain to people. It's like trying to explain a colour to someone that can't see um, what augmented reality actually is like. And now everyone's like, oh, Pokemon Go. Yeah, I get that. Um, <laughs> or Snapchat filters or yeah we get what you're talking about now and you know, I just saw today that um, Snap and um, oh, what company was it anyway it was a company that was for retails like oh we've combined forces so you can see the watch on your wrist um, <laughs> so oh, like, wow. yeah of course of course there's a use of this technology <laughs> Yeah, got it. So, Michaela, I mean, you're an early pioneer in the AI, sorry, in the augmented reality field, and especially bringing the product to Indigenous communities. For the people who are not familiar with the digital, could you just give us a quick rundown of what your company does 
how it benefits First Nations peoples. Yeah, what we do now. Uh, so nearly two years ago now, we pivoted to becoming an edutech company that teaches augmented mixed reality through a cultural lens. So what we mean by that is we work with First Peoples and we work with non-Indigenous people the same way through a cultural lens, looking at land, language, cultural knowledge, cultural law, Indigenous cultural intellectual property and moral rights and licensing and what it means truly to put culture into frontier technologies like augmented mixed reality. And we teach um, we teach teachers, um, we teach elders, and the model is that they go and teach the kids. Sometimes we get involved in teaching kids ourselves, um, but we like to make sure that we're leaving the, the digital skills in communities so they can dream their own dreams about how they'd like to use this tech. And the reason that um, we do that is because I've been lucky enough to work with Microsoft and Telstra and go to Seattle and see some of the pipeline technologies and get involved in the World Economic Forum and work with an incredible um, future council around augmented and mixed reality. And I can, I can see where the technology is going, but what I can also see is um, an incredible skills gap for First Peoples in this technology. And this tech is going to underpin the entire spatial web. So if you're thinking about where we're going with Web 3.0, it has a blockchain foundation, it has AI as the logic, and it has XR as the interface. Where are the Indigenous designers in that future? Yeah. And how did you make that pivot from your original vision of your product to becoming an edutech company? As a founder, <laughs> I'm sure that decision wasn't easy. It wasn't easy and there's nothing more painful than turning off a $200,000 application. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a breakdown basically. Um, so when we released the Kakadu application, um, it, we got lots of media coverage around the world. I went to the United Nations and was invited to speak. Um, on at the UN in New York on the world, the day of the world's indigenous peoples. Um, to showcase the technology. We've, like the UN, showcased um, our product in the foyer of the UN building in, in New York, which is pretty cool. Wow. Um, but then community from all around Australia and around the world were like, make our stuff for us. And I was thinking, I can't, I don't, I don't have a team. I don't have the correct technologies. I can't be the custodian of all your digital storytelling. That's just not mm. going to work. So, um, so yeah, I pretty much decided I was going to quit what I was doing because I couldn't see the way forward. And then I was lucky enough to meet um, Tianji Dickens at Microsoft and she kind of opened the door um, to some amazing opportunities to reimagine what it looks like if we think about what we were doing in a decentralised um, way and what it could look like if we simply empowered other people to do this work themselves and have full control and custody over the content that they create. And what were your first steps in actually establishing that edutech company? I think a lot of people out here are, you know, aspiring startup founders who are listening to the podcast as well. So it'd be yeah. interesting to see, you know, how you built that from the ground up. Yeah. So what we did first was work with a cluster of five primary schools in Western Sydney and go through an incredibly manual process of creating augmented reality storytelling that was that the kids physically engineered themselves. 
with the guidance of elders and community. Mm. And then we produced a product from that. Like, what does it, what does the output look like? And um, we produced 400 sets of these incredible Darawal language cards um, where the kids created all the content. And that went kind of gangbusters. And the teachers also spoke to us about what an immersive experience it was for them to work with community and also like how much they'd been able to see the kids' lives change from doing this project together. And so I was like, okay, well, this is a thing. So how do we wrap around the process and the technology support to make this scale out? And I was conscious of not wanting to scale up because that means mm. taking a business model and like cookie cuttering it around the world. And I knew that wasn't going to work for First Peoples. Mm. So like, what do we put in place to scale this out? <laughs> so um, I was then able to um, take the concept to um, AMP and as part of their Tomorrow Makers um the AMP Foundation is part of their Tomorrow Makers and I won um, a small amount, $25,000. It's the magic amount. It's the magic amount for us. I was like, please could someone put an extra zero or two on it? Um, but yeah, really grateful for the support we got from the, the Tomorrow Makers um, Award. And I thought, okay, I've been doing this by myself for eight years at the time. I need... I just need to bite the bullet and employ some people to help with this. And I need to quit my parks job and mm. do this full time because all of this time I was still a park ranger. I still had to be a park wow. ranger to pay all the bills of the company. Okay. I didn't realize that. So yeah. you're juggling a startup plus your day job. That's incredible. Yes. It was incredibly exhausting. <laughs> Would I Not do much it again? sleep, I'm guessing. Yeah, probably I wouldn't do it again. I you know. I, I think because I was having to be a park ranger and earn the income from a career and then put it into the company, you know, I made a lot of mistakes because I couldn't give my whole attention to people that wanted to work with us. And it just became like there was a breaking point in that I couldn't continue to do both. So... I was offered the opportunity to, the, to do the Master of Cybernetics and I thought, okay, this is an opportunity where I can really step out, really hone my knowledge and skills in frontier technologies um, and give myself space to kind of scale this company with the support of my new staff member that's going to join us. <laughs> and I didn't know who that was going to be um, and I didn't really know what they were going to do, but... Um, a friend of mine who I'd done the Australian Rural Leadership Program with five years beforehand um, came to Canberra on my last day of parks and she said, um, my whole situation's changed and I'm coming to Canberra and I'm going to be looking for work here. And I was like, would you work with me? Wow. <laughs> and she said, doing what? And I said, I don't know, but this is, there's a lot of interest in what we're doing and I really need some support around growing this out as a business. Um, yeah, and Joe just happened to have those business building skills. She um, grew the um, youth food movement. So she'd grown something from, from scratch and had, you know, had 400 volunteers around Australia with passionate young people who were creating this movement uh, around pe young people's relationship with the food production and agricultural systems. So she knew how to build something and to scale it. And I was like, well, let's, Let's just 
hook in and see what we can do with this. And three months into that, um, we had a massive opportunity um, from Microsoft to, to scale our program and we were able to get a bit more um, funds in the door. So we employed um, our next employee, which was Matt Heffernan. He was um, an ICT graduate. Uh, he's a Lurich man, an ICT graduate from the Northern Territory. So he joined us from Darwin and we got him working on some Minecraft um, stuff with us. And then, and then the team kind of grew. And now we're sitting at nine. Um, and yeah, and we're 86% female and 86% Indigenous and we operate remotely. Um, we don't have like an office or a head office and um, it just works. <laughs> Wow. I mean, as a, as a founder and as a CEO, how has that team dynamic evolved as you've hired more people over time? It's just gotten stronger. And I think why that is, and I'm not sure because we've only been doing 18 months together. Um, I think because we all have a common value set around cultural integrity. So mm. there's never any questions when we're looking at opportunities, there's never any questions from the team about what's right and what's wrong with what we're doing because we're all where we have that in us as cultural people um we know the way and we also have a lot of community members that advise us and we have um kind of circles around the business full of incredible people that help us make decisions but the team is so strong um and we've only We've only ever hired with our guts. <laughs> okay. We don't, yeah, we don't hire for um, the skills necessarily. We know, mm. um, like, um, we know that we can train people in the technology. Like, that's easy for us to do, but we can't train people for cultural integrity. Um, so we deliberately select people that live on country who are cultural people who know what they're doing with their own communities. And um, yeah, it just seems to that's, work. That's amazing. Congrats on growing the team. That's really great progress <laughs> in such a short amount of time. Thank you. I'm, sh I'm sure you're getting a bit more sleep now and a bit more rest now. That you've, actually, <laughs> <laughs> you've got one totally. job and, and a team. <laughs> I totally am. Yeah, they're all incredible people. And, they're, and, you know, when I say we didn't hire for skills, accidentally everyone had skills as well. But first and foremost <laughs> was, yeah hiring with our, our, our gut. It's our first brain right in our tummy, culturally. Yep. Um, so yeah, we always, we always listen to that. <laughs> That's amazing. So Michaela, talking about the business itself right now, how do you plan on scaling uh, in digital as an edutech company? Because like you mentioned, you can't just cookie cutter it across mm. places. It doesn't work that way. So what is your plan for growth for the business? Yeah, so we've got a couple of things that we're implementing. Um, one is obviously we've built the technology stack um, so we can technically scale out. We've built the curriculum um, as a framework. So we're like, this is kind of the general direction of how you run the program, but you guys put the cultural integrity inside that framework that's relevant to your local community. So it allows leadership from the community on what they want to make, what stories they want to tell, what language they want to share, um, the community all decides that. Um, and we also are, are working with corporate partners across Australia. So we have the Edutech program that is the individual schools program and that's in schools. We also have adapted our program 
um, for the corporate market as well. So we're working with large corporates to take their executive teams through exactly the same program where they get to work together with elders and they get to work on augmented and mixed reality production and so they can understand the technology as well. And how has reception been from your corporate partners? Has it been an easy an easy uh, value proposition for them or you know, do you have to really fight for their business or? going okay so far um a lot of what we a lot and the reason that we work with corporates is not because we just want to work with corporate australia it's because we understood that the kids that we were growing the digital skills and the cultural competency with would potentially like to work with some of these corporates Mm. and as being responsible and responsible adults in helping mentor young people. We want to make sure that the corporates that they're looking at traineeships with and jobs out of school with are actually culturally competent and can work with first peoples in a very strong way that supports them. So we help the corporate build that capability, helping the kids build the digital skills capability and um, hopefully they get to work together. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it is 2021. Uh, I think, the, the topic on a lot of people's minds is still COVID-19. So, yeah. you know, it has, it has fundamentally changed the way that education's been delivered. Um, and I'm guessing that it's also had quite a tremendous impact on rural Indigenous communities who might not have access to that kind of technology. How has Indigital adapted to COVID and how have you continued to deliver your, your services throughout COVID? Yeah, well, we kind of we kind of grew up in COVID. <laughs> so <laughs> we had to, we just had to work out what's the best way to do this with the situation that's unfolding. So in some ways that gave us a, a bit of a leg up because we got to design in COVID how we would do this. The other um, question around technology and uh, internet, it's a huge challenge and it's a challenge not just in regional and remote Australia, it's a challenge in Western Sydney where the simple cost of having a device and having an internet connection is still very high for a lot of community, like my own community, Dorog community. There's not a lot of people that have cash flow to just go out and buy a laptop for their kid and then connect it to the internet. Um, so when we've been working with some members of my community on projects, we've had to pay for internet connectivity so they can send us their work. And um, it is a huge, huge challenge and a huge, I think what COVID has really done is put put the microscope on inequality and it's visible now. This was always the case before COVID, but now it's visible. And I think it's good that it's visible because people can collectively come together and work with communities and say, we wanna support you to solve these challenges. Yeah. yeah. And what does Australia need to do to actually solve these issues in the longer term? Is there a, a magic you know, solution or <laughs> is it a, a lot of tiny things that need to happen? I think the thing about the time that we live in is we live in complexity and there's no one solution to anything anymore. Everything is so connected. Everything is so multi-layered. Um, I think there's a bit of naivety around people that are like, oh, we can just solve this challenge with this solution. I don't, I don't think we're ever going to get to say that about issues ever again, <laughs> because mm. just the volume of people that are on the planet. I think community need to be centred, though, when we're working on 
or with community, we need to centre the community. And that means they need to be in control of all the decision-making. They need to be in control of their resources to, to resource things. And as much as possible, that's the model we use is to make sure that community have the resources and support around them to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And I think it's a bit of a different model to just standard philanthropy. So we're a social impact business. Um, we're, we're for profit, but we're also for purpose. We want to make sure that our role solely is around focusing on what community wants, when community wants it, and how we harness resources in our network to, to invest in that. Because it really is an investment in the future workforce, in the future economy. Um, the Indigenous economy is booming. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we hold so much potential for this country. Um, but we need to be invested in. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess this is a good segue to my next question, which is, you know, what does success look like for Indigital as you're delivering this education to these communities? Well, I love this question because in the end, success isn't about Indigital. It's about the success mm -hmm. of the community. And when they deem something is successful, that's when we celebrate with them because that's success ultimately. Personally, success for me um, and the team is witnessing people take their first step to a new future that they've imagined for themselves through our program, through them seeing technologies like augmented and mixed reality and through them imagining yeah, their, what the pathway looks like for them. Yep. And uh, exciting announcement, this Friday, you've just announced the Indigital Minecraft Education Challenge. Um, I hear you've had over 160 schools register uh, with yes. over 6,000 students participating. Yeah. Is that right? That's right. Yes. That's we've just huge. Been, <laughs> yeah, we've been, this is the second time we've run the Minecraft challenge. Um, Minecraft education plays a really strong um, part in the Indigital Schools program. So kids actually get into Minecraft education in the context of our program, producing augmented reality and they learn coding and um, how to express culture through Minecraft worlds. And then they like take a structure block out of Minecraft that they've created and that becomes the background of their augmented reality experience. Um, so Minecraft is a huge part of our program and we partnered with Minecraft and Microsoft and Xbox and the National Library this year to um, run the challenge again and the NAIDOC committee. Um, and it's all around the theme heal country side by side. So the kids were encouraged to create their current world in the place where they are and tell us what are some of the challenges that the community is facing in the context of heal country. And then they had to clone that world um, next to the world they built and then reimagine what that looks like incorporating indigenous knowledge systems. Yeah, it's been really moving. Um, that, so everyone submitted their, their challenge materials on Friday and we spent the weekend in the last two days um, shortlisting. And Friday will be the big day where we announce the prizes. So very excited. Without giving too much away, was there any one particular world of solution that was particularly inspiring or moving for you? <laughs> this is the thing <laughs> about it. It's so <laughs> difficult. <laughs> to shortlist this <laughs> program because we're, we're seeing the incredible work of communities from across Australia. So like we had Australia's southernmost um, school and Australia's like northernmost school. So these are very remote communities. Um, also had kids in Western Sydney from specialist schools who are nonverbal submit um, into the challenge as well. And they're doing that in the context of COVID. So 
it's there's so many um, parts to shortlisting the program based on you know the the hurdles that the teachers and students have had to overcome as well to simply submit. So it is really tough. Uh, it's always great to see language and knowledge at the forefront of the worlds and how they've worked with their communities specifically to incorporate those facets of the Minecraft world. So yeah, I, it's going to be pretty tough. The, the final judging panel <laughs> convenes this afternoon. So I'm really looking exciting. forward to making them choose because we can't. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I'm conscious of your time. I know you're extremely busy. I, I do want to wrap up with two questions if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, Question one, you know, at, at the start of the podcast, you, you mentioned that when you were starting out as an Indigenous woman with a new technology, it was extremely difficult to, uh, you know, get support from the local venture capital crowd here. Do you think that's changed now in 2021 versus, you know, when you started the company? I'd really like to say yes to that question. <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah. Uh, what's good about it is there's way more females involved in the decision making around venture capital in Australia, which is great. What's also changed is there's networks like SHEO that that have an alternate model to securing capital for female um, and female identifying businesses. Um, we're about to go through this whole process again. <laughs> so um, I might have some more insights for you after we go through it again. Um, I hope it's changed. I certainly don't want to be in situations where we're where we feel diminished by having conversations with people about what we're doing. Um, we know what we're doing, and we know that we have the support of our communities, and we know that it works. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. I think we we've got a lot more evidence, a lot more data, and we're in a very different position this time because you know before it was just an idea in my head, um, and this time we've got we've actually been delivering it. So, yep. Hopefully, and hopefully it's changed. A good lead into my next question, which is, or my final question, which is, what does the future hold for Indigital? Uh, yeah, well, we're obviously scaling out. So we have been working with a few pilot communities in Canada, New Zealand, and um, Kenya's coming up as well. So wow. yeah, we've been working with some First Nations communities in those countries to Amazing. run the program and just pilot that it works in different contexts which it does, which is awesome. Uh, we got to see uh, um, the Sasquatch in augmented reality um, the other day from Canada. It was so cool. Um, yeah, the kids are creative. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so just scaling out really and making more, more connections internationally. We, we are lucky to be going to World Expo at the end of the year um, to you know, be part of the International Rewired Education Summit. So really looking forward to meeting some people there and you know, learning, um, just learning really, putting ourselves in places where we can learn more about what the new internet looks like, how we can help shape that, how we can bring communities along to play a part in shaping that too. That's amazing. Michaela, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, all the best for judging later this afternoon. Thank Lots you. Lots of applications. Can't wait <laughs> yes. to see who the winners are. <laughs> yeah, me neither. It's always like, yeah, it's always a great moment we get to announce that and see the kids <laughs> just get really excited. Uh, but thank you for having me. Um, yeah, if anyone has any questions, just please feel reach out to me. Hello at indigital.net.au is how you can catch us. And yeah, we look forward to hearing some more podcasts from YBF.